Hey folks, I'm really excited to share a special offer with my listeners today. Skip the trip to the pharmacy each month for your birth control. Get free delivery with free goodies. Yes, free, like Haichu, which are super tasty, chocolate, tea, and even more. Never run out of birth control again. <laughs> That's a big deal, y'all. Get Pandia Health Peace of Mind. Pandia Health makes sure no one runs out of birth control on their watch. Pandia Health brings you a pain-free birth control delivery right to your door. I know one of my biggest fears was making sure that I had my birth control prescription scheduled just right so I could pick them up before I ran out of pills. Ugh, seriously, never again. But now Pandia Health is here to help you out with free delivery of your birth control pills from the only, the only women and doctor founded, women and doctor led company in birth control delivery. Already have an active prescription at a pharmacy and insurance to cover the medications, Pandia's health delivery, automatic refills, and a reminder to see your primary care physician each year. Those services are completely free. If you ever need a doctor consultation because you want to change the method of birth control or the pills that you take and you don't have an active prescription, it's just 29 bucks once a year to access Pandia Health's expert, passionate doctors for the next 364 days. You save the trip to the pharmacy each month, plus you save the trip to the doctor to get your birth control prescription. Pandian Health can deliver to all 50 states. They take almost all private insurance, except for Kaiser. They do take family-packed PACT, which is also wonderful. Pandia Health is about care, convenience, and confidentiality. Head over to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com and sign up now. Now, don't forget the code. You get some money off if you get the code Sex Talk with Erica. That's Erica with a K. And you get $5 off the doctor consultation if needed. Because I'm a curious person, I had to ask about the name and I find it pretty cool. Pandia Health comes from the Greek goddess of healing, light, full moon, Pandia. Pan equals every, dia, day. Pandia Health has you covered each day of the year. It's called the Pandia Peace of Mind. Y'all, go check it out. Sex talk, Derek Miley, cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough, no. Sex talk with Derek Miley. Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. Um, Y'all are accustomed to me gushing when I get to bring on somebody that I consider like a mentor or somebody that I look up to a lot. I have the founder of the Harvey Institute, writer, teacher, all around awesomeness at making the field of psychotherapy better, Doug Braun Harvey. Thank you for joining me. Oh, Erica, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. I want to make sure that I reference your most recent book, which is Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior. So I've had other folks on here talking about the myth of sex addiction, and we've talked about all of those things. So do you want to kind of give a brief synopsis of what treating out-of-control sexual behavior is about? 
Well, right. The subtitle for the book, Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior, is Rethinking Sex Addiction, is the subtitle. And so this is a model for uh, helping therapists screen, assess, and treat this form of human behavior typically called sex addiction. But we approach it from a way of seeing it as a human behavior problem, not a disease or a disorder. And it's a, a, a way of working with, and it's only specifically for men, who are wanting to align their life with six principles of sexual health. And the idea is if you align your life with six principles of sexual health, you won't be able to have out-of-control sexual behavior. They're mutually exclusive. Beautiful. I just, I can't, we're going to get into to those, the, the six S's as you, as you like to say. I want to frame our conversation for the, our listeners out there. This episode is for you helpers out there, you psychotherapists, you, you psychologists, you ARNPs. This episode is for you. I've been in trainings with Doug, and this information is is going to be incredibly helpful to your practice and, and who you see on a regular basis. So big surprise, therapists, just like <laughs> everybody else in the world, they can feel icky about sex too. And it can really impact their ability to 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 treat even even the the regular issues like I mean regular issues the things we see most commonly like depression anxiety trauma they have the same problem the rest of our culture does how does how does feeling icky about treating sex or or feeling struggling with treating any kind of sexual issue impact people in mental health care and and drug treatment in particular what do you think? Well, Erica, I, I'd like to just, first of all, maybe offer some language that helps us with expand the idea of feeling icky. There's actually research and study on this very question that I kind of just want to kind of rely on here to start with, and that there's three kind of areas of therapist or any kind of healthcare professional, any kind of helping professional, doctors, nurses, uh, chiropractors, uh, OBGYNs, all sorts of folks are dealing with three areas that have been studied and researched around sexuality that really come into play that affect patient care. One is the professional's comfort. We know that when a a professional is not comfortable or when a professional actually has a great deal of comfort in addressing set matters of sexual health with clients, when they have a great deal of comfort, there's much better outcomes and sexual health outcomes for a client. When a professional feels little to no comfort, many sexual health outcomes are poorer and and maybe even remain unaddressed. So therapist and professional comfort is a really important idea to work with in this area. The second area is willingness. Is a professional willing to engage in conversations around sexuality with their clients? And willingness really means about initiating. Am I going to bring it up first? Am I going to practice and feel comfortable and competent in addressing and initiating conversations about my client's sexuality rather than waiting for the client to bring it up or waiting until some sort of sexual health crisis or emergency emerges in the client's life that sort of requires it now to be discussed. The third area is ability. Am I able to have effective sexual health conversations with my clients? Do I have knowledge? Do I trust the knowledge I have? Do I have confidence in what I know? Do I have confidence in how I can speak about what I know sexually in a way that engages and interests people rather than make them defensive and move away? So I'm going to translate feeling icky to mean how comfortable and willing and able 
is a professional to engage in a sexual health conversation. And honestly, in the the training that I do with therapists directly, this is exactly one of the three or all three or versions of the three <laughs> are what we're ta- what we're tackling together. Do they have the words? Do they have the language? Do they understand the biology? Or are they feeling like an imposter? Or are they interpreting that their client has a better sex life than them? Like all of those things are what fall under that umbrella of like in quotation marks, icky. And I, I, I think you put beautifully put like those, those three areas matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's re- I think really hopeful is that when a therapist focuses on their increasing their comfort or when they become more willing to initiate these conversations, when they feel more able to engage in these conversations, they're going to see their clients have better treatment outcomes. And and most therapists are really heartened by seeing better treatment outcomes. They like it when they see their clients have better treatment outcomes. And sometimes, you know, facing their own discomfort and, and concerns about addressing sexuality is worth it for many therapists because it matters so much to them that their clients have good outcomes. Yes, the reason they got into the field to begin with. I think that that is that you were just addressing the thing that I want people to keep their clients, right? Like I, I don't want them to refer to me as a sex therapist because they feel inadequate to do the treatment themselves. I'd rather them retain the relationship and and talk about sex in a way that feels authentic to them, that feels like they are knowledgeable and that they're able to yeah. do it. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, Eric, you know, know this, and I'm sure any professional who's been trained in advanced degrees in licensure and psychotherapy and mental health knows that the training in human sexuality for us is very poor, minimal, you know, amounts of time, if that. And most states don't even require training in human sexuality to become a licensed therapist. So it's not like sexual literacy is a high standard of training and education expected in mental health licensing in the country. So that hence we have a field of, of sex therapy and education that's a certific a field of certification that's above and beyond and separate from academic training and licensure training because it's not expected to have this level of knowledge in order to be a licensed mental health professional in the US. And and uh it just it breaks my heart. I'm just like, oh, it breaks my heart because it feels, it it feels very much to me uh, like a failure to the therapists themselves because it is what is the first thing that they talk to us in, in ethics about is don't have sex with your clients. What do we see culturally in movies and TV shows? How are therapists portrayed? There's often like inappropriate relationships that happen between a therapist and client and in TV shows and all over media. So, of course, like to me, it's a it's a failure in our field that we should at least get access to this information and the education. I I think that the the important thing I like to kind of remind myself of is if people are in good company, physicians, nurses, doctors, the entire spectrum of healthcare delivery in the United States is not a sexually, we are not a sexually literate healthcare delivery system in the United States. 
Yes. So therapists, you're not alone. (laughs) That's right. And I think that's important, particularly important for therapists to hear that this isn't just a, you know, a a, a concern within the mental health care or drug and alcohol treatment field. This is across the board. Just as a sideline, you know, the average number of hours that a, a physician in medical school has training in human sexuality is four hours. Out of, out of four years. My, it just, oof, oof. It's like a punch in the gut. We're already talking about how words matter, right? Like we're, we're already talking about how much that absolutely matters. We're, when we're talking about physical body parts, when we're talking about genitalia, we're talking about all of those things. And something you said in, in the training that I went through with you is that I think is something that I think all of the listeners need to hear, not only the helpers, is that you were talking about how uncomfortable people are not challenged on their discomfort. And often the rule of that conversation is, and they steer the conversation. How can we impact this with our words? How can we impact not only just how we talk about sex, but when someone is uncomfortable with a topic, how do we get there? I think I I, want to comment first on just the idea you're introducing before we talk about how to ameliorate it. You know, I, I do think we have a kind of general pattern in the United States that if in a group setting and some sort of a, you know, a meeting or educational setting or public policy or wherever it may be, the person who's the most uncomfortable in the room talking about sex, if it's about a sexual policy issue, or if it's about sex education, or if it's about a sex therapy issue or a sexual functioning concern, and there's, you know, a group of people in a room, oftentimes it's the really uncomfortable person who's uncomfortable talking about sex or doesn't want sex to be talked about that will control the conversation. We sort of have this agreement in our culture that when people are uncomfortable talking about sex, really uncomfortable talking about sex, we need to adapt to them, that their discomfort is just so important to attend to that it controls the conversation. And they, they quite frankly, have a lot of power in our culture for being uncomfortable talking about sex. They set policy. They can they can keep things from being discussed and, and repress knowledge because they just don't believe these things should be talked about. So that's kind of a general cultural agreement we have. And so, you know, you said, how can you deal with this? I think the important thing is, is to not try to change the uncomfortable person. That tends to be the way everybody tries to focus their attention when there's this challenge or distension between comfortable and uncomfortable, is the comfortable people try to change the uncomfortable people. Whereas I think a much more useful approach is to just be comfortable talking about sex. Show people what it looks like to be comfortable talking about sex. Model what uh, sentences sound like when you're knowledgeable and trained about uh, sexuality and not focus on the discomfort of another person, but just feel good about and feel confident in the fact that you are a comfortable person talking about sex. So for example, I was in a training with people who do therapy with children who've been uh, uh, sexually abused or victims of violence, things like that. And I was doing it, and these are people from a wide range of professions, uh, doctors and nurses and psychotherapists and probation people and, you know, all sorts of people that are involved in the child welfare and child and field. And I was giving a talk about sexual health with these children and how to address sexual health. And I was talking about even just the lack of knowledge of body parts that children will have, you know, the proper names for a penis or a vulva and, and uh, you know, things like this. 
I was talking about how this is actually a really important skill set for parents and children to know. And a woman raised her hand, and she was a pediatrician from another part of the country than where this conference took place. And she raised her hand, and she was so uncomfortable with the fact that a child would be exposed to those words. That's going to harm them by hearing these words. They shouldn't have to hear those words. And rather than to try to change her opinion, I said, you know, well, those are the words I use. I said, so when a child's interacting with me, they're going to come in contact with the words that I use. So I asked her, what words do you use when you need to talk about a child's penis or vulva in a medical setting? And so that's all I did. I just, I just, I told her who I was, and then I just asked her how she handles it without suggesting she had to handle it a different way. Yeah. And without gushing and, and saying like, oh, well, let me, let me show you how you're wrong. Right. You just accepted, okay, this is this person's reality. Mm -hmm. And then I asked her how she does it. So when you refer to a vulva with a patient, how do you refer to it? How do you, what do you say? I'm just trying to picture like being in a pediatrician's office and them struggling with genitalia words, but also how much that must cause them a level of discomfort all day long, if that makes sense. Oftentimes I think we retreat to our own defensiveness, right? So like that, that I'm, I'm comfortable with this. So you need to be comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is one of the liabilities I think of professionals who are highly trained and sexually knowledgeable. I call it the smugness effect. When you have a lot of sexual knowledge and you, you're really confident and, and clear about what your knowledge of sexual information and behavior and activities is, there can be a bit of a smugness. Like, look what I know. And people can throw words around that are kind of a bit provocative or look really comfortable talking about sex in, in environments that maybe that's not exactly what the topic of the gathering is. And it can be kind of distancing. So, you know, it can be on both ends of the spectrum. The really uncomfortable people, un- uncomfortable people can sort of, you know, really, you know, cause suppression of sexual discussions in in lots of settings. And people who are extremely comfortable talking about sexuality can cause defensiveness because they're uh, kind of expecting people to have conversations they're not really prepared or confident to have. Right. And any conversation that we start when we start from a place of defensiveness or overconfidence, that goes super well. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and yeah, so, so you know, I think what maybe you and I are going to talk about a little bit about is some, you know, some skills that are that actually engage and encourage people to talk about their sexual health without uh, feeling defensive and without feeling they're judged or shamed. Uh, I just love you just moved us beautifully into the successes. And, and I really, I really want you to be able to, I want you to talk, say what you, the six S's. So I'm saying S's and Sam folks out there, you developed these and, and you developed them to help essentially like be able to go into drug treatment centers and be able to teach this kind of curriculum that will, would make sexual health more accessible and to them, but then so that they can help their clients with their own sexual health. So, so what are the six S's? Well, well, let me tell you first what, what why they are, what they are about. What we know from the research is that one of the 
primary pattern counselors use who are not comfortable or willing or able to talk very well about sexual health. The pattern, the way they cope with this lack of ability and comfort is they use avoidance, that avoidance strategies, avoiding talking about sex is the primary, what I call treatment plan therapists use for themselves when they're not confident to do this. So these these successes were the kind of strategies counselors who are not comfortable or very uh, capable and confident in addressing sexual health matters uh, and initiating those discussions with their clients when they're just not very confident in those areas. Uh, they have to they have to have some strategies to avoid sexuality being talked about or close it down should it come up or that is the common strategy. It's avoidant strategy. So the first thing is these successes are what I call count that they're all counselor avoidant strategies that really avoid more detailed and in-depth discussions around sexuality. The second thing is we know with therapists who aren't very comfortable or able, they're highly anxious when sex comes up or they're anxious about sex coming up or they're not confident when sex does come up and they get anxious. So these successes aren't just avoidant patterns, they're anxiety management, they're emotion management strategies. When people engage in any one or more of these successes, they're trying to manage their anxiety that they're experiencing because the client or the clinical situation requires sex to be talked about and they don't feel confident in doing that. So as you listen to each of these successes, I want you to think about this is what a trained professional might do when they're either feeling anxious or they they just want to avoid the subject matter of sexuality in, in a clinical setting with a client. So I'll start, you know, the first one is, it, it may sound, you know, kind of preposterous, but the, one of the primary avoidance strategies is just silence. Therapists just will not talk about sex. They won't initiate it. They won't bring it up in their assessments. They won't ask about it in their screening or, 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 you know, basic assessments. They won't include it in their overall health and understanding, their clients. They just won't say anything. So there's lots of ways of just, just being silent about matters of sex and sexuality. Think of it as kind of a retreat from interaction. Is really what that silence is, is, you know, I'm, I'm going to pull back. I'm, I'm not going to move towards you. I'm not going to engage with you. I'm not going to try to make contact with you. I'm not going to try to support you, you know, because I have so much anxiety or I'm trying to avoid this topic so much. But so my silence is really a retreat from interaction, not an engagement. Right. That I'm going to stand here still enough. And maybe if I don't move... The tiger won't see me. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that, you know, why this silence sometimes might be in place is the therapist might be very concerned uh, about their client being defensive and brings it up. You know, I don't think we should be talking about this in therapy or my culture doesn't talk about sex or, you know, things like that. There might be an awkwardness. It's like uh, we've never talked about matters of sexual health before. And so both the client and the therapist are feeling a bit awkward. The therapist may not have many skills. And so they don't know quite how to form a sentence or what word to say, or they might know not, not sit comfortably in their chair. Um, and, and it might even just literally create a conflict with the client. 
you know, I can give an example of this. This, this isn't in my line of work, uh, but my husband works with people in child maltreatment. And they've had people in child sexual abuse treatment centers where this child has experienced some of the most horrific and terrible violations of sexual health that a child will ever experience usually by a family member, somebody they know. And yet they go into treatment for healing from the trauma and the consequences of non-consensual and exploitive sexual activity directed towards them as minors by some adult. And the parent will say to the therapist, you cannot talk about sex education with my child, or I don't want you to even speak of masturbation, or I don't want you to talk about certain matters of sex with my child. And the parent is serious about this. So that their the child has experienced some of the worst consequences you can imagine around the sexual activity. And the parent is still concerned that sex education or talking about masturbation in a, in a, in a, in a healthy way is actually going to be more harmful to the child than what they've already gone through. Right. Essentially binding the therapist from being able to to help really, really re- be able to help create a healthy space for that child to understand what has physically happened to them, maybe what is physically still happening to them, and essentially putting the therapist in a in the the place of having to defend caring for yeah. this child. Right. So that that silence is is a very powerful force, not just, you know, the, the therapists themselves, but there can be a, a great conspiracy of silence to really talk about sexuality. So the silence is an important one. But one of the most common ones I see amongst professionals, particularly professionals who work in some sort of a, a team setting, let's say they work in a drug and alcohol treatment center, or they work in a nursing home for elder care, or they, they work in a residential treatment center for youth, or, you know, so, some place where adults or, or children, you know, live together in a common institutional kind of setting, of course, where the sexual lives of the people who live there is going to be a big deal, that oftentimes with the, the way sex is discussed or referred or even mentioned in any way is usually through the, the, the professionals making humor, jokes, innuendos, smirks, smiles, or just outright laughter. These are the ways that sexual matters and sexual issues will be discussed amongst the the, the professionals involved in in uh, who are working in a, in a kind of a team setting. So that I call it that kind of silliness factor. So silly conversations and jokes and all of that. Those are all ways to uh, kind of avoid really important and significant conversations about sexuality by just resorting to these kinds of silly comments. Right. That again, that the tiger is in the room. I'm going to do anything possible to avoid said tiger. Yeah. And again, I think what's important, what I have found over and over again is this is not conscious. People are not like intentionally thinking the way you just said, like, oh, I better nick, you know, it, it, it's it's not even quite so conscious all the time. It's just sort of automatic. It's probably what they experience in many other places in their lives. The silliness and silence, all this goes on in society and in families and all sorts of places. But I think the reason I, I bring it up and talk about it in the context of, of healthcare delivery and, and medical and uh, mental health care delivery is that unfortunately, those places aren't often a contrast 
from society and popular culture and what we do. They, they just reflect it and, and treat sexuality the same way as you would if you're at the grocery store and talking about it, rather than it's, it's a serious issue. So that's why it's so important to point these, these defenses out, not that they're unique to a healthcare delivery setting, but you know that they, they're particularly unfortunate barriers in a setting where I think people really want to have sexual health be more talked about. Yes, where where they might actually feel that, oh, okay, this might actually be a place where I can ask questions or I can say something and then still met with that discomfort by whomever that provider is. Yeah. Now that moves us into the next one that I think is, is really a powerful one, and that is shame. When a counselor responds in some way, even just a facial expression, or maybe a body movement, or maybe the fact that they don't respond. There's so many ways for a counselor or a therapist in a moment of, you know, of, of a sexual health conversation being initiated by a client, or maybe the client shares something about their sex life that the counselor knows nothing about, or the therapist has never heard about that sex act, or, or is only knows about it in a way that they have high judgments about these sort of internal reactions that might have, particularly if they're unprepared for the discussion, the therapist might have a wave of disgust go through them. They might feel angry. They might, they might even feel a rage at the client. Like, how could you even talk about such a thing? You mean you do that sex act? Oh my God. So they're not even prepared for that. And when they're having that response, it may show on their face. It may show in their tone of voice. And it's subtle, but if it's there, oh my gosh, it is such a powerful suppressor of sexual health conversations that all, all somebody needs is that shaming response once from a therapist or a professional. And may, they may not even be willing to go there again with that professional, but they may not be willing to try that again with a new therapist or a new professional. It's a legacy that really has reverberations for many, many times later when sex might have been talked about and the person will remember the shame they went through the last time they brought it up. This is the S that when you were doing the training, this is the one that I hear about in these examples that you are sharing from the clients who then end up with someone like me, a sex therapist. This is the S that I hear when a client comes in and says to me, I brought up my sexual issue, whether it was I'm having trouble reaching orgasm because I've been dealing with depression for 15 years, or whatever the case may be, this is the one that I hear from them. I tried to bring this up with my therapist and they blank, right? Like they they avoided it. They had a look of disgust. They had a look, whatever, whatever the case may be. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So I'll, I'll give you an example that somebody told me in a training. This was in another state. I guess I can say the state. They were in Oklahoma. I was doing a training in Oklahoma. And there was this is a group of about 200 adults in the room. And we were, were, we were training them on some how to have some sexual health conversations in the particular profession we, that they all had in common. And um, at one point, uh, a woman in the audience raises her hand and she said, now this isn't about my workplace. This is about my personal life. And she said, my doctor's office, where I go for my own medical care, in the waiting room of the office, in a picture-framed, printed-out announcement, 
says in big letters, if you are not married, do not ask for erectile dysfunction medicine. In the waiting room, that's that's in the public waiting room of the doctor's office. Not a, that's not even in an exam room. Wow. So there's a there is a judgment in a frame sitting on a table. Yes, in a in a, in a waiting room. So think of the shame somebody might feel who walks in there for any kind of medical procedure and gets the message that my doctor believes it's shameful to engage in non-marital sex and is promoting that in the medical office. Yeah. Well, the the only positive I can see in that is then at least that is telling you what that doctor, <laughs> what you're going to get when you get in that room. And maybe it's okay to look at that sign and go, okay, I'm going to exit the front door. Yeah. Right. They, that sucks. That totally sucks. That's what shame is like. One of the successes that, that can happen, and this is a this isn't one that is talked about, I don't think, enough. And that's that some counselors are just kind of shy when it comes to talking about sex. Some of this can be cultural, some of this can be, you know, family-based, some of this can be their own experience. Some, some people are just shy and they have a shy response. So I think what's important is for some counselors or therapists, talk about sexuality will activate a shyness response on the part of the therapist. They might blush or they might even start shaking or maybe have shallow breathing or maybe swallow a little differently. They might feel a little more speechless for just a moment. These are biophysiological real experiences people have when the shyness response is is activated. And it can be difficult for a therapist who's not, if they haven't had any training or any knowledge or, or any preparation for sexual health conversations, it can be difficult for them if just one of their natural responses, it's just a natural response they do is they get shy. It can be quite a barrier for their clinical work if, if they just get this shy response. Yes. Yes. I, th- I think what you're saying is something that I, th- I think many of the helpers in the world, after your supervision or after someone stops watching you, it's one of those things that maybe you forget about, or maybe it doesn't happen all that often, or maybe it's something that you've just learned to try to like push through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think acknowledging that you have this response that you have no control over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right. Can give you some freedom, at least in in the acknowledgement that this is normal for you. For me, right, right. And then uh, as a ther- like all of the therapists, when we realize there's parts of ourselves that, that might interfere with the work, we have to figure out how to address that so that it doesn't interfere so much with our clients. One of the most powerful S's that's done, I think, systemically, this is more systemically, is suppression. Or policies, procedures, lack of training, punitive responses by uh, supervisors or people in charge. These are all the kinds of things that can happen that actually suppress and, and are active suppression of sexual health discussions and conversations. I'll, I'll just give one example that I learned kind of the hard way through training. Um, I did an intervention in a drug and alcohol treatment center years ago in San Diego around uh, addressing sexual health and drug and alcohol treatment. And all of the clients in this 28-bed program 
while they were there, three months, six months, nine months, sometimes even a year, every week had a 90 minute group in sexual health and learned lots of great things. And the clients loved this. They just, they just loved the class, but they were when they left residential treatment and would go to another level of care, maybe a, a recovery home or something like that. They would bring their sexual health knowledge to that center. And one uh, woman in particular who was very proud about all she learned at the sexual health courses at this treatment center went to her recovery home. She was interviewing to come to this um, recovery home, talked to the director and was and showed her everything she'd learned and brought out the certificates of completion and all that about sexual health. And the director of the program, literally, this is, a, this is the story as told by the client. The director of the program banged her fist on the table at her and looked at her sternly and said, we do not talk about that here. Mm. So we were unprepared when we, when we empowered people with sexual knowledge. These are drug and alcoholism clients who were in recovery and, and really glad to have learned sexual health information and who were comfortable and wanted to initiate these conversations and now felt some newfound ability to talk about their sexual health as it relates to their sobriety and recovery. She was so excited to bring that to the treatment center. And the immediate response was a harsh suppression. Yes. Do not do that. We do not do that. So sometimes the suppression is is real and abrupt and quite shocking. Yes. I've had young, I mean, young in the way of, of new therapists come to me and that they will have come to the group that I have on, on Facebook, Facebook uh, Sex Talk with Erica Professionals Group. And they will talk sometimes about their, how being unnerved or scared because they brought up a sexual health question with their supervisor in regards to a client case. And had this suppression, exactly what you are saying, it is unethical for you to talk about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Right. That is the message immediately. You brand new to the spanking, brand spanking new to the field. Yeah. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Yeah. Don't well, talk about that. Telling somebody they've done something unethical as a therapist is that, you know, you're, you're supposed to suppress the activity because they've done something unethical. That's why we do supervision. Oh, that's unethical. Okay, I, I won't do that again. Like touch a patient during, you know, on their genitals while I'm doing therapy with them. But when the same feedback is used to suppress sexual knowledge and conversation, that's quite a different case. And not allow for that therapist to understand the case in the depth that they m- more than likely need to. Mm-hmm. So let's end with, the, the, at least here with the successes, the last one is superstition. And, and, and I think what's important about superstition, the role superstition has in an avoidance of sexual health conversations is when there's an absolute lack of knowledge, maybe we don't even have the science to understand it. There's all sorts of superstitions to fill the gap for a lack of sexual knowledge for listeners to understand is, you know, most of almost every, literally almost every single thing we know about sexual response, sexual functioning, sexual pleasure, we've learned in the last 40 years. It's in the span of time, such a short period of time. That's right. So, so think of the the centuries, the millennials, years where the the information we had about sex was all superstition. Everything was superstition. 
No, well, I mean, humans hate ambiguity. Like we can't, we, we are the children, children, children of the cave people who are standing in front of the cave, looking out there and going, is that a blueberry bush or is that a bear? Right. right. And I'm going to sit here by this cave because I'm pretty sure it's a bear. Right, right. And so we are the we are their children. So it, it makes sense that superstition has grown up around things we do not understand or things that around sex or around like even medical research generally. Mm-hmm. Or pleasure. I think one of the areas where superstition really goes front and center is the superstition and the superstitious thoughts people have about pleasure. For instance, if you have too many orgasms, you can harm your body. You know, just think of all the things people have superstitious thoughts about, about sexuality. I just had somebody post in my group today, a fellow therapist, say that in in their Instagram feed, someone posted a picture with the Pornhub logo that was essentially saying that porn causes brain damage. Yes, right, right. It does not. For the listeners, porn does not cause brain damage. That is superstition. That is exactly this. That's right. And we rely on superstition when it aligns with our biases. We, we, we align with superstition when it seems to explain something good enough for us without having to inquire and learn more. And we, we also utilize superstition when it aligns or can help us become liberated from a moral conflict. Oh, I disgusting. That's terrible. And then now I can go back to my moral principles. And so superstition- yes, that is separate from me. That, that is separate from me. from me. It's not mine. Right, right. And so, you know, so superstition is very much relied upon. So those are the successes. Those are the things that I, I sort of like to have people think about as to how are they limiting, avoiding, not allowing for more accurate and deep and meaningful and thoughtful and sometimes difficult to have uh, sexual conversations. Doug, so beautifully put, and it, those six S's are a, such a gift to us professionals out here to help us understand this really isn't our fault. And it's okay to get more information. It is okay to get more education. And it's okay to screw up. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the nice thing about your listeners is if they've made it this far through our conversation, they are doing the very thing, the very thing you you just said. It's really important to get information. It's really important to find places that you, you learn and value the information you get. And your program is providing that that need for people who are listening to this. Yes. Everyone out there, Doug Brown Harvey just said that about my show. <laughs> so I, I do want to say uh, thank you for, for being with us. We have one last thing to do, and that's, that's my segment called Ask Erica. And I really wanted to tackle this question that I get in so many different forms. And I know that you have gotten uh, many, many times from clients and, and therapists and all, all of the experiences you've had. The question is, am I normal? And that that question shows up in, am I normal when I masturbate? Am I normal when I look at porn? So let's let's tackle this question together. Let's maybe destabilize some shame systems together. <laughs> am I normal? What is What are some of the responses you give when you've heard this maybe from clients or therapists? Well, normal can mean a lot of things. And so that's usually what I ask the client first. When you tell me normal, what is it you're wanting to know? 
Mm. So do I do it the way everybody else does? Am I like everybody else? And so one of the things I, I like to say about sex when it's about being normal is I'll say, you know, most people like to get A's when they study a subject. They, they like to excel. Most people like to do well in school. But when it comes to sex, why is it everybody wants to get a C? <laughs> Fair. And so, so when, when, when somebody's saying they're normal, I'm also wondering, are they just wanting to be average? Because that's the place where less judgment might happen. It's a place where less fear might happen. It's a place where they're not going to feel alone or, or unusual. And that's a very comforting place for many people to feel like I, I'm, I belong. I have people like me. One of the great, I think, contributors to feeling less abnormal has actually been online sexual information through websites. And people are beginning to see there are people like them, no matter how unusual or unconventional their sexual interests or turn-ons or erotic fantasies may be. They can begin to find that there's lots of people around the world who have very similar kinds of fantasies or erotic interests. And this can be quite important. We do need to know we're not alone. So sometimes normal might be, am I alone? Am I the only person like this? Is that what they mean by normal? And then, of course, another thing that normal might mean is, is this sick? Is this perverted? Is deviant? Am I is there something disgusting about this? So that may be what, what they're so concerned about. I just don't want to be a source of disgust or disdain by somebody. You have to first just slow down and have the person teach you what they mean by normal and listen well and see if you can really hear what it is they're concerned about. And those are just some of the examples I just said that you, you might want to listen for when somebody's telling you about what they mean by this word normal. Beautiful. Beautifully put. Break it down. There's always more data. There's always more to know. Oh, Doug, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm again gushing. How do people find you in the world? The best way to find me in the world is to type into your search engine, Doug Braun Harvey. And my name has a hyphen. There's a hyphen between Braun and Harvey. Or you can also go to the Harvey Institute. That's www.theharveyinstitute.com. That is the website for the Harvey Institute, uh, founded by myself and my partner and husband, uh, Al Killen Harvey. And you can find information about upcoming trainings, the books that I've written, the journal articles that I've published. You can find information about other kind of resources around sexual health, what we mean by sexual health, videos of trainings that I've done. There's a wide range of information. And there's just a couple of other trainings I, I just want to, your listeners might be interested in attending. I'm going to be in uh, Seattle, Washington uh, next Friday and Saturday, basically talking about this exact topic. I'm going to be talking with for Antioch University on how to have sexual health conversations for psychotherapists. So this very topic is what I'm going to be talking about. I'll be in Atlanta, the Duluth, Georgia area, but really Atlanta area on March 21st and 22nd, uh, doing a training with a colleague, Kristen Hudson, where we'll be training on working with uh, couples where one member of the couple uh, may be presenting with out-of-control sexual behavior as a concern in, in the uh, couple's uh, behavior. So those are just a couple of the upcoming trainings I'm doing. I'll also be in New York City at the American Group Psychotherapy Association Conference at the end of February. 
early March, uh, talking about uh, group therapy techniques in working with out-of-control sexual behavior at the uh, national meeting of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Fantastic. Everybody, show up at these trainings. Go buy all of Doug's, uh, go buy Doug's books. Go do all the things. You will not regret it, I promise you. Again, thank you for being on the show. And folks, thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.